Welcome to the Ars Technicast, where Ars Technica writers and editors discuss the latest in the worlds of science, computing, technology, and everything else in between. During each episode, we dig deep into some of the issues we're writing about at ArsTechnica.com. We also talk about some of the stuff we're doing when we're not circling around the Ars orbiting headquarters. I am your host, Cesar Torres, social editor, and this week we are joined by science editor, John Timmer. Hi, nice to be here. We've also got my co-host, Casey Johnson, Ars contributor. Hello. And today on the show, we also are joined by Amy Shiratitle, who is the proprietor, author of the blog Vintage, Vintage Space. Um, today we are going to be talking about, about space, generally, uh, historical events with space on the podcast. Amy is basically the internet vintage space exploration expert, as far as I know it. She uh, has written for Discovery University Today and Scientific American. She, well, she's appeared there. Uh, today, our keystone event sort of that we're centering this around is it is the 44th anniversary of the Apollo 11 launch next week on July 16th. And Amy, as you've told us just recently, you basically think that this, this trip was the beginning of the end of our perception of spaceflight. Uh, yes. <laughs> um, I sort of have this wi wildly unpopular idea that Apollo sort of ruined space exploration for us because it's given us this idea that we can basically do anything that we set our, set our mind to. And there's a little bit more to something big like exploring space than just deciding to go. Um, you always... People are always misquoting some astronauts saying, you know, we, we didn't need a reason to go to the moon. We just decided to go. Well, that's not entirely the case. Um, I mean, you, you can see it now in the, the state of space exploration. Deciding to go doesn't get you there. You need a lot of factors. And um, Apollo 11 was sort of the culmination of nearly a decade's worth of all of those factors being in the right order and the right place at the right time to get someplace exciting like the moon. And after that, it, it kind of petered out the, the program, the last three missions were canceled and had a very brief stint in space with Skylab before the shuttle. And then it's, I mean, we all, the rest is history to be trite about it. <laughs> so it's basically like when a writer comes out with a new novel that just blows everyone's minds and then they go on every talk show and it's like, wow, you came out of nowhere. You, you just, you know, we've never heard of you before and you wrote this book, but it's actually like this person has been slaving away for 40 years, just trying to write something. Yes. I, I suppose that's uh... <laughs> like, I just mean, there's a lot of work under the surface that I think we look back with sort of rose colored glasses. Like we decided to go and we went and like, that was it. But then it was really, there was a lot maybe that people didn't know about in the planning. Yeah, it's um, it's definitely not the case that Kennedy decided to go and then we did it. It was there was a lot of planning before there was even a NASA about how to go to the moon, and there were a lot of a lot of the technology was already under development with various aeronautic companies or military branches, and it was all it was all there, kind of in potential. But then it had to. It, it needed an impetus, and, and we did get that impetus in the space race, sort of in that first wave of trying to get a man into space, and then Kennedy sort of putting the nation on this course. But it's 
we, we need to remember how much actually went into it. And what we what we see is this sort of nice, clear path from Kennedy to Apollo 11 is one layer, sort of the top layer of this massive undertaking with, you know, 400,000 people who all had to do something to make it happen. It's it's a big business going to the moon. So basically, like when Kennedy was said, let's go to the moon, we were already like 90% of the way there. Just like the the uh, like ninety percent of the iceberg was under the water at that point. Okay. Yes, the um, rockets were were on on the drawing board and engines were in those early phases of development and people have been thinking about it. I I don't I don't think he would have said let's go to the moon if he knew that there was no possible way to make it happen. So there was it was an educated thing to say. Mm-hmm. So now we expect too much. You think that people people think it is just as simple as someone declaring that we go to the moon and then it'll all just sort of come together. I think I think so. At least the the popular conception of that seems to be that that's the way spaceflight works, and it's really not. <laughs> um, mm-hmm. I, I see it a lot on online, just kind of around social media. People saying, "Well, if we went to the moon in nine years, why can't we get to Mars?" Oh. Mm-hmm. That's that's ignoring the historical and social and political climate that enabled the Apollo program to happen. So taking it out of context creates this really non-viable model of spaceflight. It's it was it was awesome. It was really awesome, but it doesn't necessarily apply to every decision to go someplace cool. Mm-hmm. Jay, you were um, alive and well during the. Uh, I mean the. I mean, technically, you were alive during the best part of the Apollo program. I understand you were young, uh, but you also were around for the subsequent missions. And were you following them when you were a kid? Uh, to an extent. So I was only three or so when Apollo 11 went to the moon, and I really don't have distinct memories of that. But I certainly remember throughout you know, my very early years that splashdowns happened on a regular thing, and we'd go watch the film from coming in from the aircraft carrier. And the one I actually remember most distinctly was the very last moon mission. Uh, the splashdown from that, my grandmother, who had been born in 1896, I think, and so she grew up without automobiles or anything, and I can't ima- I can only imagine what she was thinking as she saw people on the moon. But she got all the kids together for the splashdown and said, you know, watch this, you'll want to remember it. And it, it actually worked, because I remember it. Uh, really clearly, but you know, af- after that, there was just you know um, a lot of talk of the shuttle, and I had a friend whose father worked at Rockwell, which was one of the major contractors for the shuttle, and he kept you know we kept seeing all this literature as the different designs were considered, and you know it all looked exciting, but it it seemed to take years, and then it didn't quite work as planned. And, uh, you know, because there was talk that it would make going to orbit cheap and regular and they do, you know, dozens a year and it just never really developed that way. Mm -hmm. So, Amy, you had, I was reading your blog, you had a fun anecdote about how Alan Bean managed to, I mean, the, it's the Apollo 11 trip was famously broadcast and everyone could watch it more or less live, as I understand it. And Alan Bean, sun, sun, your term was sun fried the camera. He, he burned something in it using the sun. 
I think actually the official term in the mission report, the post splash down report is sun fried. Mm-hmm. Um, so after it, it became pretty obvious that Apollo 11 and the, the power of visual media for bringing people along on this journey and really kind of, you know, Na- NASA needs money. Like everybody needs money. They needed a way to, to get that funding. So making, making it accessible and broadcasting, it was a great way to do that. Um, they decided to, bring color TV to the moon on Apollo 12, because why not see the moon in all its desolate glory? Um, so un- unfortunately, there was, um, I mean, ev- everything was a procedure down to the littlest thing, like taking out a camera and setting it up on the moon. So it fell to Al Bean, who was the lunar module pilot on Apollo 12, which um, was in November of 1969. And the way the way his procedure dictated that he take this thing out of storage and actually set it up and do everything. He practiced it. I mean, they practiced every detail on earth and the way he did it, the sun was supposed to be behind him based on, you know, the time, the time of lunar day that they had landed and everything turned out the sun was not behind him. And when he was setting it up and turned it, however he was supposed to, he pointed it directly into the sun and the sun just completely fried the the, uh, film mechanism and all of a sudden, this this nice kind of colored picture of an astronaut standing on the surface became this eighty five percent black box with a, a weird white shape on top, and it just stayed. So, um, I believe they had actors ready to go in a in a soundstage pretty quickly thereafter to uh, have some kind of video to go along with the audio that was coming back from the moon so that people could still see what was happening, even if it wasn't the real thing. And they have tons of pictures, but yeah, um, they sent backup cameras after that incident. I had no idea that that was like, for real, they showed soundstage footage on TV and people were like, oh, we're watching people on the moon. I think I haven't actually been able to find a lot of that footage. I think it's um, like ABC News and stuff had had their own archives of it so it's a little bit hard to find but i think they had um recreation written on the bottom of the screen wow which which probably on some level i'm not sure where the moon hoax thing started beyond people thinking it was insane but it probably didn't help the moon hoax theorists right there were recreations broadcast during the news at some point in the 60s yeah that's like there's like a kernel of truth to this moon hoax stuff it's like i mean really they did possibly put one over on did you guys did Cesar or Jay did you either of you know this cuz i had no idea no i wasn't aware um that's incredible did so these these people were in full astronaut gear looking trying to look as uh realistic as possible yeah i'm i'm actually i'm not sure if they had people sort of miming what they were doing or if they had Apollo 12 training footage that they broadcast because when they were, when they were learning how to do everything, you know, unstowing this camera, they had full mock-ups of a lunar surface and the whole, you know, a training lem and training suits and training everything. So they, they had enough stuff to basically recreate a moonwalk at NASA. I'm not sure exactly how it played out because it's, it's been hard to track down the footage, but there was enough so, stuff there to fake it. <laughs> how far into the in I believe the mission was something like 21 hours in total they were on the moon. How far into that process did Alan Bean ruin the camera? I think that was like 
like maybe half an hour in. Okay. Wow. Um, pretty pretty soon thereafter, it was um, Pete Conrad as the mission commander got out first, and a remote camera saw him, and then Al Bean came out second. And one of his first things was to set up the camera so he the camera would be able to see them on the moon doing their their stuff, and and it never did. Wow. Um, and I can, I can actually add an anecdote about that because I've met Al Bean a couple of times and he has all these great, um, stories as to why the camera broke. Um, like, like when I asked him about it, I don't know why I asked him about it, but I did. Um, he said that it wasn't a camera, it was a sun telescope. So he pointed at the sun like he was supposed to. Um, and I heard him telling someone else that the broken camera was on the moon. They just happened to land next to it because Pete Conrad was that good at pinpointing a landing. So um, I asked him how many of these sort of clever little answers he has lined up for when people bring it up. He said he just comes up with them off the top of his head. But I thought that was kind of a good a good thing to do is have all these stock answers these good witty mm-hmm. little excuses <laughs> that's cute just out of curiosity what was the longest time spent on the surface of the moon of the missions um apollo 17 spent the most time on the moon um in part as nasa got more sort of seasoned to going to the moon they they got a little bit more daring in terms of letting them stay longer they had the the lunar rovers they could go further and there's more science in the later missions. I'm not sure off the top of my head how long it was, but it was, I think they spent two nights, two Earth nights that would be on the moon as opposed to uh, two hours, which is what I think Apollo 11 spent. Wow. That's insane. So, okay. The other anecdote I think that I saw on your blog that I just love is a mission, this a mission that predates the Apollo program. It was, I think, Gemini 3, which was uh, 60, 66, I want to say. Is that right? 65. Okay. So this was four years prior. You had a picture of, of I guess it's a famous picture. I'd never seen it before, but a picture of a crew, a, a like ground crew member putting a sandwich into the pocket of one of the astronauts. Right. So this is this is a bit of an odd story because I found this picture rooting through some NASA archives and I'd never seen it. And this is actually, speaking of Apollo 12, this is actually Pete Conrad going to the moon the morning of Apollo 12. And I'd never found a reference to why they took sandwiches with them. Turns out um, I, I did speak to the surviving crew, um, Albina and Dick Gordon, about it. Um, they apparently hadn't had time to eat lunch before they went so they packed sandwiches in case they didn't have time to unstow their food and and needed something to eat on their way while they were in earth orbit before actually going to the moon um and i have no no proper verification from nasa on that just two astronauts words um but the the most famous sandwich in space was actually that that uh, one on the gemini flight in 1965 um the the space food wasn't great at at the time. It's gotten better, but it really wasn't very good in in the mid sixties. So um, John Young, who was the pilot on that mission, it was a, it was two man crews at the time. Um, John Young was the pilot, and he'd conspired with Wally Sherat, who was one of the Mercury astronauts, to get 
a corned beef sandwich from one of the astronauts' favorite delis and bring it on board with him to surprise the mission commander, Gus Grissom, who is another Mercury astronaut. Um, so they, they get into space and they have this really bland space food and John Young pulls this corned beef sandwich out of his leg pocket. And it's, it, you're in this tiny, I mean, the Gemini capsule was like the size of the front seat of a Volkswagen. They're tiny little things. You're stuck in there and you've got this massive odor of corned beef sandwich. Um, and apparently uh, Gus Grissom took one bite and the crumbs and the debris just kind of went everywhere. And when you have no gravity or microgravity rather, Crumbs can get into things and be disastrous. Um, so they stowed the sandwich and never, never bought, brought contraband food again. Um, but neither of them got into trouble for it because they were both assigned to later flights. But it's a good, it's probably the most famous sandwich story in all of space flight history. I mean, could it be the only, the, the first and only sandwich in space? Probably the first and only contraband sandwiches. Okay. They did They did get sandwiches in there later. Like, this is a thing. I mean, I guess I've seen, like, freeze-dried ice cream sandwiches, but that's not really the same, same thing. thing. The only other sandwich I've ever seen is this one picture of the suit technician putting it into Pete Conrad's leg pocket. I, I love that photo because it, it doesn't look at all like they've wrapped it in anything. It's just <laughs> stuffing the bread right into the uh, lunar <laughs> equipment suit. I mean, granted, the suit is probably one of the cleanest things on the planet at that point. Mm-hmm. Better than any Ziploc bag. No no aluminum foil, no, like, saran wrap. This is, like, the best thing you can do to a sandwich is put it inside a spacesuit. suit. <laughs> Bugs Bunny style. Yep. Yeah. yeah. That's what he would do. I just think, like, I just love the idea of, like, just that, that photo. It's just, like, it's like a parent sending their child off to school with their little lunch in the pocket of their spacesuit going to space. And I also can't believe that, like, it seemed it seemed from the way you phrased it that they sort of knew that there there's, like, all of these reasons why they shouldn't have food on a spaceship. And it's, like, it seems to me pretty serious. Like, if it blocks the, I, I forget what you said, the, but it blocks the circulation systems, or it can get, like, the crumbs, the crumbs can be disastrous. But they're just, like, they want that sandwich so, so badly, it's, like, they forget all they're going into space where only a handful of people have been before and they could die at any second. But like, I guess, I guess in that sense, it's like you would want to have your sandwich with you if that were the case. There's, there's that. And there's also a pretty strong trait of pranking one another. And, you know, they're a bunch of guys. They, they (laughs) like to do, they, they like to do their thing and drive fast cars and take contraband sandwiches into orbit. That is true. That's probably bringing a sandwich on board the spaceship is like the least dangerous thing they're doing, but whatever. So, okay, moving on. There is, this is also, I mean, it was a few weeks ago now, but this, we're also in a time of some anniversaries of uh, female space flight uh, trips. I think there was a Sally Ride anniversary and a Tereshkova anniversary that just came around. Um. If you could touch a little bit on those, um, yeah, the um, we just passed the fiftieth anniversary of Valentina Tereshkova's flight. Uh, she was the first woman in space. She flew aboard Vostok Six on. Oh, I'm going to get the date wrong, <laughs> but it was in 1963. Um, and and hers is kind of an interesting story because a lot of, a lot of 
people look at her as sort of the first step towards gender equality in space, but it was less a step for gender equality in space, more a step for the Soviet Union to secure another first over the Americans in space. Um, so, so she, she was part of an all female cosmonaut training class. There had been, um, 20 men selected in 1959 and in 1962, they brought in five women. They were all parachutists because part of the Vostok mission profile was that the cosmonaut had to eject from the back uh, or from the, sorry, (laughs) they had to eject out of the capsule, um, at the, at the end of the mission and actually parachute to a landing because the Vostok capsule didn't have a man rated landing system. Um, so these, these women went through the same training that the men did. And the idea was actually to send Vostok five and six together into orbit and have them not not meet up in orbit because they couldn't actually change their orbits, but just launch in such a way that they would pass in orbit with two two women. It didn't work out that way. Vostok 5 was piloted by a male cosmonaut whose name escapes me at the moment, um, and Tereshkova in Vostok 6. And apparently her her duties in flight were relatively minor. It was more to see how the human body would withstand... Um, three days in space. She was up in orbit for three days. Um, and there was a lot of interest because she actually ended up marrying a cosmonaut as to um, how her children developed because her children were born from two people who had been into space. Um, spoiler alert, they were fine. They weren't born with extra ears or anything like people thought might happen from radiation. Did she choose that or was it just like a convenient thing? <laughs> were, did they like make, were they like, here, you two get together? Or was it like this just happened. They were like, this is a, this will be interesting to find out how these children go. Um, I don't actually know, but I've seen a picture <laughs> of her wedding and she looked really happy. So I like, I like to think that it was a, you know, you have this love of science and flying and commonality of having been to space. So you get along. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so what's, what's kind of, what's interesting when you look at, at Tereshkova as being first, first woman is that it was 19 years before another woman flew in space. And to me, that's pretty significant. That says a lot that this wasn't, this wasn't starting women in space and making it regular. It was, it was a move. And then it was almost 20 years before another woman followed in her footsteps. And it was another, um, it was another Soviet cosmonaut, Svetlana Savitskaya, who was also launched for um, a more political reason. The year before, in 19, I think it was 1980, that Sally Ride joined NASA with, there were five women in her astronaut group, um, which was a mixed group. It wasn't an all-female group like the Soviet Union had done. Um, And NASA just announced that she would be going into space as their first female astronaut. So the the Soviet Union replied with, well, we're going to launch a woman before you do that one. So they sent (laughs) Svetlana Savitskaya up, Um, I think, the year before Sally Ride, I think it was less than a year. It was probably about eight or nine months. Um, but Sally Sally Ride is sort of the one. It's been thirty years now since since she became the first American astronaut, female American astronaut in space. Um, and because I mean, her that her astronaut group was a mixed gendered group. Um, I think says a lot more about the slow introduction of women in into spaceflight because it wasn't that ride flew and then there was a, a gap before the next woman flew. I don't know when the next woman did fly, but it, it wasn't 20 years later. So, okay. I am curious about this now. 
I don't know. I don't know if you can like speak to this on a, on like a detailed level, but I've, I've just recently run across on the internet, I believe on Buzzfeed, some images of letters that, or at least a letter, a couple of letters that NASA sent to little girls at the time, I think back in the sixties, little girls who wanted to be astronauts. They were like, how do I, like, how do I, how do I get there? And asked, like, what can I do for you to become an astronaut? And they sent the letters back and we're just like, they basically said, women can't be astronauts. And uh, Hillary Clinton was a famous, uh, she's uh, apparently, I've never heard her personally, but she's referenced it multiple times that NASA said, no, 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 no space for you, basically. So I'm curious, NASA has since defended itself saying that it didn't, I mean, this is like the most sort of hedging kind of excuse, but it's like they said that women, they would say women couldn't be astronauts, not because they were women, but because there were requirements of astronauts that women did not fill. And I didn't really look into this further. I don't know if you know what the, what like the astronaut requirements were that had to be fulfilled. Right. Um, so that, that is actually the case, um, which, which is why sort of when people say, you know, NASA bad for not allowing women, well, it wasn't that simple. Um, mm-hmm. NASA did actually look at sending women into space because women are generally smaller and lighter and eat less and are, you know, more cost effective when you're talking about pounds getting into low Earth orbit. Um, but at some point, and this, this is the one thing that I just don't know, um, at some point when NASA was figuring out who they should look at for their potential astronaut corps, they were looking at stunt, stunt performers and acrobats and, you know, people who could get into small confined spaces and not freak out. Um, President Eisenhower said he wanted military test pilots. And there, there was probably some logic there. Um, these, these spacecraft in the 60s weren't flying multiple times like the space shuttle. Everyone was different. Everyone had some tick, had some possibility for something to go wrong. And what you really needed in a pilot was somebody who could think fast, who understood the way the systems worked, and could react instantly in an emergency and could do it with a cool head. And that's what test pilots do. And at the time, in, I mean, in the late 50s, when the first call for astronauts went out, the only military test pilots were men because there were no women in the military. So by by default, having that as this is what we want our astronauts to be, it was actually really strict. They had to be between five foot six and five foot eleven. They had to be under one hundred and eighty pounds. They had to have fifteen hundred hours of jet training and have graduated from a certain type of test pilot training school and be proficient in certain flight styles. That narrowed down the the candidate pool quite significantly. Um, but across the board, it just that one military test pilot requirement cut out women. So NASA did change that with every astronaut class. They sort of started bringing in more scientist backgrounds and limiting the flight requirements. It started demanding PhDs instead of just um, some college. And it was, it was actually Sally Ride's class that NASA really changed its astronaut selection procedures and started opening up two different classes or um, sort of types of astronaut, um, astronaut pilots and mission specialists. And the mission specialists are the ones who aren't pilots. They're just scientists or have some other thing to offer. They're usually kind of given one task as opposed to, you know, commanding the mission and flying the vehicle. They're running the science experiments. And that was how 
that was kind of how women came into it because now the military was requirement was dropped and also the military started letting women in. So I'm a little curious. I, a lot of my people I know on via social media and such are applying for astronaut classes and such. None of them so far have gotten it, but what constitutes a class? How, how, you know, how long is a class kept in circulation once they graduate or do they graduate? You know, what's involved with a class of astronauts? I am not actually not, and I think you mentioned it, not sure how long someone stays with NASA, all things being equal. Um, when I, I mean, when I say class, I think of sort of the groups as they come in, like the first, first group of Mercury astronauts is kind of class one. And then the second that came in in 62 would be class two. Um, and they all, they all kind of, I mean, everyone's career is different. That goes across the board. Um, you know, if you, if you mess up somehow, you may be quietly booted from the agency. If you prove that you're pretty awesome at what you do, you may be in higher flight rotation. Um, so I'm not, I'm not actually sure how long, but, but the average, time an astronaut spends in the astronaut corps is and what sort of how much they move around within the agency without leaving after they stop flying. So I'm curious now just because of the 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 women that like the military stipulation for women I mean just the fact that they were looking for people people who are test flight pilots. Why wouldn't then the NASA why wouldn't then NASA reply to these women and say and say, oh, just become a test flight pilot. I guess it's because they, you know, they didn't. I, they didn't want to be encouraging women to do not quote unquote womanly things at the time. Um. So I, I also think I saw the same picture on BuzzFeed that you're mentioning, and I think the date on that letter mm-hmm. was 1962. At, at which mm-hmm. point, um, I don't remember what the date was, but they NASA may have still only had that first class of Mercury astronauts, in which case mm-hmm. they weren't yet at the stage of changing their requirements for incoming astronauts. So it would have been it would have been probably considered quite cruel to tell a girl to go tell the military <laughs> to allow women to become fighter pilots. Mm-hmm. Um, because this was this wasn't just I mean, this wasn't just NASA saying, well, we don't want girls doing this stuff. I mean, NASA did employ women. Um, mm-hmm. They did have female scientists working on various, you know, electrical parts of spacecraft and doing, um, you know, crazy things with propulsion systems and all the all the heat shields were actually built by women. Um, I think it, it was more that the the reason why women couldn't be astronauts at the time was rooted so much further away from NASA than just we say yes or no. <laughs> there was mm-hmm. there were so many layers to go through that it would. Um, probably less malicious than the internet feels like it was so when so when russia did it basically i mean you said they were they did it purely just like using this woman as a pawn for to to get a first for themselves but do you know if they had any concerns about her reaction to i mean i guess they they i guess if things went bad they had no problem with straight up lying like they lied about the dog so it's like if she had, if she had, like you know, during launch, just like you know, combusted, they would have just been like, you know, successful woman, and they probably would have found a lookalike to like play her for the rest of her life, and talk about how she went to space and it was fine. Yeah, it's it's um, I mean, the Soviet 
records are still, I mean, NASA has everything online. Basically, the Soviet history stuff is not as readily available. So it's really hard to say what or speculate about what they would have done had Tereshkova's mm-hmm. flight not gone well. Um, and of course, I should say that none of this is to say that Tereshkova isn't awesome because she's done a lot for mm-hmm. women in mm-hmm. science. And she's, I mean, she's a really accomplished scientist in her own right. She just, she managed to get lucky getting that flight. But um, yeah, she was, she was launched to sort of serve as kind of a figurehead to the Soviet Union to say, we value our women as much as our men, which, (laughs) you know, that's, that's what they said. But Mm -hmm. the same reason Mm -hmm. that they pitched this really cute little Yuri Gagarin to, to fly first, because he was such a great model of the Soviet system, both, both Gagarin and Tereshkova actually had risen through the Soviet system and gone through different military tracks to achieve greatness. So they were this great person for young people to look up to. And they're both paraded around as such after their flight. Mm-hmm. So I'm intrigued so, by the whole idea that they actually had to bail out of the capsule and couldn't ride it all the way to the ground. How How long was that sort of the current technology and did that ever go wrong? Um, it, uh, that didn't actually go wrong, but their landings did go wrong. Um, the ejection method was only used, um, during the Vostok program, which was just the first six missions of the Soviet space program. Um, after the, after the Vostok program came the Voskhod program, which was basically a a gussied up Vostok capsule. Um, but there were two and three three men in that and they couldn't fit ejection seats so they did develop a system of parachutes and retro rockets to slow the capsules fall right before it hit the ground um the first soyuz mission was actually the one that had something there's something like 200 or more than 200 known flaws in the spacecraft when it launched one of which was the landing system and it just it didn't slow down so that that was a, a bad one Yikes. So, <laughs> so I think if we turn this around back to, I mean, sort of back to Apollo 11, but not really, you back to the whole idea of televising this and like setting expectations for the public, this, the fact that that mission was so heavily publicized and available to everybody, I, I feel, I feel like a strong connection from that with the, the Mars one uh, I don't even know if I don't, I don't even know if it's right to call it a project, like a mission, uh, the Mars One mission, I guess. That's been um, concept, making the rounds maybe? in the press. <laughs> concept, wild idea. Um, so I, you've you've written a little bit about it. Um, that that I've seen. Um, so I'm I'm curious about your take on that. Yeah. Um, I don't know what to call Mars One either. Um, <laughs> it's a thing. I don't know. Um, I think. I think what what they have sort of right, maybe, is the fact that people are interested in space and will watch it. Where I think the flaw, I mean, there's a lot of things that I see wrong with it, but just in terms, we'll stick with just televising and publicizing it on TV, is that watching people learn how engines work isn't very interesting, I kind of liken it to, I mean, if you have two reality TV shows, one is about the chess club learning how to play good chess before their chess tournament, or one is about like, you know, a really wild pack of dancers 
doing something awesome and, and dance fighting or something. I mean, which one are you going to watch? The one with the drama, not, I mean, the, the chess club is probably not going to be this like really exciting television to watch. And there's a lot, I mean, I've watched the Mercury um, astronauts in training just to sort of get a sense of what, what, what it was like to be at NASA. And it is, you're literally watching videos of people sitting in the classroom nodding. I mean, it, it wasn't very interesting. Um, so I don't know how Mars One could make something like classroom sessions learning about spaceflight TV friendly without mm-hmm. artificially creating drama. And of course, there's the issue of when things go terribly wrong because I have yet to see a actual proposal about how they're going to do something like land on Mars. Um, I mean, what do you do then? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. If you're live to the world, do you broadcast disaster live? I mean, it's just, it's, there's, there's a lot of weird things about it. Well, they cert they certainly did with, uh, the, uh, shuttle explosion. <laughs> yeah. I mean, the, the sinister thing about it is that that kind of, entertainment is only going to be really entertaining when something is going very very wrong i feel i mean once we get over the initial excitement of like oh they're floating and like they can see earth out their window and the sun and like they're the the ground is red and so forth i feel like you know maybe maybe apollo 11 had it right and like you know they have seasons of tv shows and like you know people's attention span for space may just be like that you know less than a day of of time spent in space um i mean i i even wonder how much like geek culture is sort of en vogue right now i kind of wonder how much that trend isn't driving the idea to put a mars mission on tv Mm-hmm. I feel like 10 years ago, this wouldn't have been as interesting to people as it is now. And I wonder if it will be in five years. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, there's the reality show aspect, too. It's like, what else? Well, there's not there's like probably literally nothing left on Earth to make a reality show about. Like, we are seriously running out of Earth based ideas. So, I mean, it's just like pick another planet. <laughs> yeah, it's like, I just don't know. So. Oh, what was I going to say? Um, Mars One. So yeah, just the idea of televising it is seems <laughs> seems exploitative. But the other the other side of the coin is that yeah, you you mentioned they have no plans on how to land, and this is where that whole thing comes in. Where uh, it seems it seems to be that if they just declare they're going to do something, it, it will happen, and people will sort of like rise up from the, you know, they'll come out of the woodwork with with technical solutions on how to accomplish all of the technical aspects of this trip. Uh, a common, I, I guess, I, a common sort of objection to people. Like there, there are people who really believe in this Mars One thing, and they one of their big arguments is that we quote unquote already have all of the technology. So it sounds like that's something you disagree with. Um, yes. <laughs> <laughs> Every everyone that I mean, I'm not an engineer, but all of the engineers that I have spoken to, and people who I've spoken to who actually work on on Mars remotely, um, say that. Right now, we just don't have a landing system to actually get something as heavy as a manned spacecraft down to Mars in one piece. 
and that, I mean, that to me is a huge stopping block. The atmosphere is sort of, it's, it's too thin to really provide a lot of braking for something as heavy as a manned vehicle, but it's also not, not so little that you can just ignore it and land like they did on the moon with just retro rockets. Um, it's, it's this word. I mean, the sky crane was totally bizarre because that was the only way they could figure out how to land a one ton Rover on the surface. You, you, I don't know if you could actually scale that up because engineering and scaling things up doesn't work as well as people think it will. Um, if you could scale anything like that up to landing something man carrying, I just, I haven't, I haven't ever seen it. Maybe someone has the brilliant solution and is keeping it quiet for now, but there's, there's a lot of, there's a lot of aspects of this that just don't seem to be totally well thought out. The other one that kind of, kind of makes me nervous is the, um, anyone can go to Mars. So we're just going to let anybody apply. Like, like it's the, uh, the amazing race. (laughs) I really, really think what's really interesting is all the people that I've seen sort of on Twitter. I was kind of watching this after the announcement came out of people saying I would totally go to Mars and all these discussions about, People saying, well, if it's if it's terrible, it's just it's as far as the moon, so we can just come home in three days. It's like a lot of people that are excited about this don't realize how far away Mars is or have a real sense of the psychological impact that that's going to have and opening it. That's really not thinking things through. (laughs) I just I feel like opening it to the public and saying, if you want to go to Mars, you can go to Mars. It's just like, okay, well, how about the question of can you spend the rest of your life in a tuna can with the same three people without committing homicide? <laughs> yeah, this is sort of like the opposite side of the coin from NASA being like, we want exclusively test pilots of like this height and size who are like, you know, the the keenest human beings we can find basically versus this program, which is just like, I mean, I kind I I personally doubt they will actually take anybody, but they're at least pretending that this is a thing that they're open to, which is sort of alarming. There's like there's a happy medium to be found there and it is it is not it doesn't involve video applications. I I like on a website, I feel like, but that's that's just me. Um <laughs> so, <laughs> I know I'll be I'll be curious to see if it follows through, but the I mean, I think even even the development of landing technology aside, their their budgeting is also like just not not there at all. I mean, I think the sort I haven't checked their figures for their application. Their they are charging an application fee to all of these people too. So I think that's like probably their largest source of income to date. Um, I want to say it was in the the. I want to say a few thousand people applied like right away. So at thirty five ish dollars. Yeah, I was going to say the application fee is not that much that with a few thousand people applying, they're going to get the money they need. Mm -hmm. Because especially Mm -hmm. when you when you look at the way these big programs go, you need the bulk of your money. Like, well, you need a lot more money than that, but you also need to have some idea of sustained funding for when all of those last minute problems crop up. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um. Like if you look at if you look at the Apollo timescale, if it started sort of well, we'll we'll call it 1960 when they started playing around with the idea, um, and then you know 1961 they actually start building this thing. The funding peaked in 1965 and they landed in 69. So you need this kind of burst of funding in the middle. So I don't really know how that applies to a reality TV type mission where all the excitement happens after launch, and that's where you get your TV revenue. I would think. 
think they should at least start small with like maybe a reality show about like just maybe going to space and then coming back like just stay just like go to the backyard before you go down the street to the store like keep it keep it here see if it works like mars mars is ambitious for people who know what they're doing and so it's like i don't know i I don't know where to go with these people um have you written at all about spacex and that program a, a little, but not not much. The most of the stuff I've done with SpaceX has just been sort of they launched this thing and it's neat. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I haven't really dug much into it. I mean, they at least have test pro. Didn't they just? Did they complete a a test recently? Jay, do you did you? So SpaceX is one of a number of companies that are c- competing for both. Uh, supply missions to the station and eventual manned spaceflight under this NASA commercial crew program. And they NASA sets various milestones um, for each of the com- competitors to pass, and some of them are just basic testing. You know, does this thing actually, is this structurally sound, and so on and so forth. And so SpaceX is passing all these milestones, and NASA pops out a press release each time. But it's not clear, you know, that any of them really get them a lot closer to launching people in the Dragon capsule. So, you know, it's it's definitely in the works, but it's not at all clear when they'll pass enough tests that NASA will let them put people in it and actually send it into orbit. Yeah, maybe it's um, Virgin... Uh... I almost said Atlantic, but it's Virgin Galactic that's doing the um, the passenger pl- or I say plane passenger spaceship. That's yeah, know... they're getting pretty close, I think. Mm-hmm. But again, that's suborbital, so it's nowhere near as uh, challenging. Right. Okay. Well, this has been a lot of <laughs> a lot of a lot of things I didn't previously know about space. Not that I claim to be an expert, but this has been like really extremely interesting for me so um thank you so much amy for coming on the show this has been really really great well thanks very much for having me it's been fun yeah don't forget everybody that we are easily found on soundcloud we are on stitcher of course if you go to the post for this particular show you get the show notes and then you can hit the player right in the page so you don't even have to go to iTunes but we do like it when you leave us a review or a star rating in iTunes so uh thanks for listening and uh thanks Jay and thanks uh, Casey and we'll see you in yeah. the next episode Yeah thanks everyone really enjoyed yeah. it Bye